0: You know when i actually finally listened back to one of our podcasts after refusing to listen to them for like the first year i realized it's really annoying that we talk through all of the songs (laughs) i was like wow we should not do
1: that i make a point in talking over every intro um at least i try i think sometimes i cut out what i say because it's really nonsense but uh i yeah i think uh there are some other podcasts that do it and this is my little uh, homage to those that i talk over the (laughs) intro So this is the Plans & Pipette podcast, uh, everyone.
0: Hi, welcome. Um, I'm Tegan. I'm Joram. And I'm anxious today.
1: (laughs) We just talked a little bit before we started recording um, about uh, anxiety, about the current situation. And usually I'm very privileged for not really experiencing anxiety and I can't really take part in discussions about anxiety. But the current situation, we're talking about the coronavirus situation, also like starts to get me really anxious and i'm in i'm not in the risk group i'm in an area where the outbreak is at the moment not too bad but even for me um i feel like yeah anxious
0: i think um yeah i mean we're still in like very laid-back times and places where we're still like not directly affected by it, but it's kind of this weird thing where my my work kind of went into some sort of shutdown as of today or yesterday. They declared the office less safe so we can work from home if we want to, which is like kind of one of the first big moves. And this is happening across London. Um, less people are taking the tube. So like in the morning that I got a seat <laughs> on the tube, but it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's a very infected. weird scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was still better than last week when I saw a guy pick his nose and eat it. Did I mention that already? Yeah. <laughs> pick his nose and eat it on the tube. And then that seat was free and I did not want the seat. Um, yeah, yeah. Gross, guys, don't do that. <laughs> it's really no. gross.
1: But one thing that I felt that helped me um, deal with the situation is the fact that like w- from lab work, you know how to deal with contaminated hands. Very often in the lab, you have sort of, one or two dirty hands and you So at least I always had the feeling like when I work with acrylamide gels I knew my gloves had acrylamide on them I should not touch anything on my body especially not exposed skin and this is something that I have now so subconsciously inside me that now I just treat the tube and everything as like a place of contamination so if I have to touch things to open the door in Berlin unfortunately we don't have automatic door opening in the in the subways and so you have to like at least press, like, this disgusting button there. Um, but then I just treat my hand as a contaminated hand until I can, like, reach a place where I can wash it. Like, I don't I mean, like, touch anything I... on me that's, like, exposed skin. Don't touch my face and don't touch my baby. And then as soon as I get somewhere, I wash my hands. And then I'm it's, like, taking my contaminated gloves off and... It so you're the talking
0: to me who's like a mild hypochondriac slash highly paranoid about getting sick and i never touch anything and i always wash my hands the second i enter any building or any place where i possibly can so like yeah. when i come home from anywhere outside the first thing i do is wash my hands but I mean, also i also like did that before but i'm constantly power para- yeah apparently w- other germans did not because now suddenly people are <laughs> buying soap in germany and like I don't know what they were doing. Like, how were they cleaning their hands beforehand? We do not know. But
1: yeah, that that is true. That's something that I wondered as well. Um, wh- why do you suddenly have the urge to buy soap? Why don't you already have soap? And also, like, soap—it's really um... hard to quickly use up. Even now, when I wash it slightly more often than than usual, I still have like so much soap. I didn't buy soap because I just have soap. Like, how could people? Why did they <laughs> it buy ten packs it continues of soap? To
0: exist panic, panic. Um, yeah. And then also the toilet paper. One of my German colleagues or ex-colleagues sent around this like recipes for like noodles with toilet paper and like, you know, um, spaghetti with a nice toilet paper sauce and all this kind of like bullshit from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saw- Stay safe, guys. Hope everybody's doing okay out there yeah. um, and yeah. minimize your risk to yourself, but also be careful to minimize the risk with people who are in these categories, older people, people with um, lung, heart conditions, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah small kids like very small kids that's the mean thing like the like the sort of young kids to i don't know like 10 12 years apparently they can carry the disease and spread it without really showing symptoms at least there has been like more cases i mean who's shocked
0: children are filthy covered in germs
1: but yeah but for babies it's it's uh stressful um i know from like uh yeah a a friend like or like an acquaintance from another parent from like one of the classes that we did, uh, from um, they had a very frail child, and then now for a couple mm. of weeks already in hospital with like an influenza infection, um, oh no. and just imagining go- like how it would would be for us now if like Yuna would be your
0: offspring l- is a very robust child, I would yeah. say.
1: But if he wouldn't be or if, like, if he gets the, the, the virus and it doesn't and then, like, it takes over, like, it's it's really terrifying. So, yeah. And that's, like, some parts of it that makes me anxious. It's like, mm. it's not something. I mean,
0: so far the statistics for children are, like, it's it's not really taking children. Yeah. It's not really affecting um, children or it's not killing children, at least. Um, yeah, yeah. It's the old people who are at the strongest, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's it's a really nice thing that my friend told This is kind of a fun facts section, but my friend showed me Worldometer. So um, uh-huh. y- it's worldometer.info, but if you type Worldometer into like Google, it'll come up um, and it has all these just counts. So if you generally want to feel anxious on any given day you can just go and watch the the current world population constantly ticking over higher and higher and more and more every single year as we occupy this planet in a terrifying way um but it also has stats on the coronavirus which is quite nice to see if you're interested about like how your country's doing or um like how it's escalating how um uh yeah what's happening but there's also a breakdown so you can look at like the age and the sex and um the like Pre-existing conditions and how they impact on mortality. So, like overall, it's less than one percent death rate for people who have confirmed cases. But um, zero to nine year olds, there's been no fatalities. Ten to nineteen years old, it's like point two percent death rate for the all cases. Um, and it's only when you get older. So then, above seventy, it goes to eight percent, and above eighty, it goes to like fifteen percent um, mortality mm. rate for people who get infected. So it's really most dangerous to people who are you know above 60 above 70 that's where it sort of starts yeah getting problematic and again people with um pre-existing um conditions so cardiovascular disease diabetes respiratory disease um things like this then it, it increases it by about a factor of 10 something like this but yeah um this is quite a nice like it's got general statistics about the world and government and society and all of these kind of things yeah. which you can look at generally would recommend
1: yeah yeah interesting i didn't know that side i have yeah. some some other news <laughs> i like i just needed to tell someone that i had to shave my legs and it f- i'm feeling weird <laughs> ever since and not like bad weird just like mm. it's very unusual like i had like uh, some moles i i had removed um as a precaution. Like nothing serious. But uh, because I forgot which ones I wanted to remove. And I knew they were on my legs. I shaved <laughs> all of my legs. Um, sure you yeah. <laughs> are. Instead of just the areas. Um, I must say as
0: one of the the few lucky people alive today. Who have seen you in a fishnet stocking. I would say well done. It wasn't like, a
1: fishnet stocking.
0: Was I, it not a fishnet? Yes. No, it was when, just when you like were a Plum. It was just some no. tights. No. seriously. I think it I was I don't fishnet. have
1: fishnets. Like...
0: I mean, I have you photographic wish, evidence. <laughs> you
1: wish it were... In okay. my mind, you're, um, it was fishnets. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but still...
0: I just watched um, too much Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was growing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: i feel it right now i mean now the hairs are coming back uh like i wanted to say when i wrote this down in my notes i was like i don't know why you women folk complain so much about shaving your legs it's it's absolutely fine and then the hair started growing back back, and you're like like, oh my god
0: it's so itchy (laughs) now imagine instead of legs it's pubic (laughs) hair and think on that for a little bit
1: and i have like these very large band-aids um glued (laughs) on and so it's like under the band-aids now and and i can't do anything about it and um yeah (laughs) yeah so for all you listeners, just imagine like, I'm doing this podcast with shaved legs, do with this information, whatever you want.
0: <laughs> Try just, let's all just sit for like maybe 10 seconds of dead air while we imagine Yoram's legs. <laughs> and that's done. Let's move on. <laughs> let's hear the paper of the week.
1: It's the paper of the week.
0: Uh, today's paper is one that I chose from eLife and it's called symptom evolution following the emergence of maize streak virus. It's from Ararito Monhane, I think is how you pronounce it. And I found it hard to work out which was the kind of core lab group um, because there's people from Norway, people from Sweden, people from Belgium. Um, but the majority of people involved in this were from South Africa, from what? Mm-hmm. I could tell. There's quite a lot of authors from different institutes involved in this paper. And it came out in eLife, what, last month? Uh,
1: yeah, f- uh, 15th of Janu- January um, this year. Two
0: months ago now. So yeah. long ago. I can't yeah.
1: pronounce the word January anymore. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, yeah, it's the title says it already. It deals with viruses. Um, this mm-hmm. is a virus paper sort of fitting for the current situation, but a completely different virus um, mm. with a different host um, we're talking here about maize mm-hmm. and, and i
0: think like the south africa is like the authors coming from south africa is kind of relevant to the topic because this is looking at maize and its kind of evolution and its um virus virus um relationship as it developed in africa because of course maize did not originally come from africa but it was in- introduced from south america like, 300 years ago, they said, in no, more than that, they said in the early 1500s. And then over the next 300 years until 1800, it became, like, one of the major crops, and now it's this, it's this huge thing. Yeah. But of course, as maize production intensified, so too did the presence of the virus. Dun, dun, dun.
1: This, this virus, um, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> from what I understood, it's an endemic virus to the area, um, and maize is a cereal and another thing that's a cereal is grasses and so i think this is a a virus that was endemic to grass species over 100 grass species and Mm -hmm. it sort of jumped over to the maize. which in when it's grown in monoculture it's a very attractive target for any disease because it can very easily spread closely from plant to plant
0: yeah and just like in any situation where you have higher population density you get more easy spread of any germs viruses um, bacteria these kind of things
1: yeah, and so for over 300 years now, um, this virus, and we haven't said its name yet, its name is maize streak virus A, um, has been, or the maize streak virus, it has different uh, subtypes, um, has been infecting these crops, these uh, maize fields. And um, today we have um, uh, this virus type A, which is a combination of like two previous types, type B and type F slash G. So it like, it tells us already it's evolving it's changing over time it's combining from like different uh, strains um and yeah hasn't been the, t- the same for for these 300 years
0: and when it gets into the the maze it doesn't really kill the plant or not 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 quickly but it damages quite a lot and screws up the leaf we'll get into a bit of detail about that a bit later on but basically it reduces the yield and because of that it's this maize streak virus is one of the biggest thing that threatens food security in the sub-saharan african region so it's pretty important to understand basically how strong this virus is and you know if it's getting stronger or like how it's developing and kind of understand its relationship to the maize because of course that can always help us like develop resistance
1: when it comes to evolution for viruses and like the way They adapt, and I'm like anthropomorphizing them there because they're not even really alive. They're they're sort of active. They they are not living things, Um, but during evolution, when they adapt, um, they have a sort of dilemma that they face because if they are very effective, if they're very good at what they're doing, which is damaging the plant, um, they might kill it, and before they multiplied enough so that they could spread. But if Mm -hmm. they are too slow, if they are very mild, the plant has more time to react and potentially can um, develop defense mechanisms that the virus then uh, again can't uh, fight against and also loses this battle. So it has to find uh, sort of a sweet spot where it multiplies enough, quickly enough and damages enough that the plant can't get rid of it, but also um, that it... Uh, dies late enough so that it can actually spread to the next plant and continue its its cycle.
0: Mm. So there's kind of this like kind of catch-22 situation. Catch-22? Yes. Yeah. It's like, is it catch-23? It is 22 catches. Yes, catch-22 situation where it wants to be strong so it can defeat the defenses of the plant, but not too strong. Otherwise, it assures its own destruction and basically takes itself down with the plant so
1: for for this virus what is um, this particular is that it doesn't kill the plant we said that already Mm -hmm. that it damages it and um, but the plant survives at least it survives until we harvest it which is a sort of special system um, uh, because yeah usually when you have a plant growing they they are not harvested and when we harvest maize it's harvested destructively so the plant dies from the harvesting and not from the virus um
0: so this kind of makes it a bit hard for us to actually understand with these viruses how intense they are because maybe they are going to kill the plant at some point but we don't like with um animals you can generally tell because they exist over the lifetime of the animal maybe but with plants um often the lifetime t- is quite short but then also we damage them so it makes it harder for us to predict how strong the virus is and what exactly this trade-off relationship is in the virus that's kind of a uh, A limiting factor
1: and that's also true for the modeling um the models that we've uh, done so far on virus evolution which is a very important thing to study because if we understand virus evolution we can make predictions about viruses in the future and how we can sort of anticipate certain traits to emerge and can can counter them and um yeah, the models that have been created in the past, they were often focused on deadly viruses, viruses that kill their host and how mm. they balance out the death of the host versus their own like um, tendency to spread. And this particular virus that is very uh, damaging to crops uh, is its not um, deadly. It's not deadly. Yeah. So the, the the models that we have, they don't really apply here.
0: So in this study, they wanted to look kind of at historically, how this virus has developed Um, and they wanted to look over as much history as they could, but practically they could only get samples of the virus since 1979. So they looked at almost 60, 59 field isolates of this streak virus that were taken between 79 and 2007. And then they took all of these isolates and they used them to infect maize. And they had three types of maize.
1: Yeah, they had a sensitive type of maze, um that is sensitive to um, the most common strains of of this virus and uh, yeah, very severely affected. They had a moderately resistant type um, that could withstand some types of the viruses or while uh, was being sensible to others, and had a strong resistant line that was resistant to most virus um, types. And so and they had this like three three different like this this gradient of resistance that they could now infect
0: yeah so then they infected them with the virus and they measured the kind of output and they looked at different um, changes to the plant itself so chlorotic area so this is like area that kind of turns a yellowy color which of course is very important because it's changing the development of chloroplast which is my favorite topic (laughs) Um, then also how intense that chlorosis is so you can get like pale green you can get yellow you can get like almost completely white if there's really like strong damage to the to the plaster development then also you can have leaf deformation and leaf stunting systems that get cold and these are all kind of quantifiable um things so you can look at like the the area of the the chlorosis but you can also look at how yellow it is and then like how much stunted there are so this is something that they could kind of um measure for the different types of maize
1: and the reason they think that the chlorotic areas are actually related to the virulence, so the, the spread of the virus, is because um, the way that the virus jumps from plant to plant is by um, having a leaf hopper, like an insect, uh, feeding on the saps that uh, that's infected with the virus and then it's not the virus that jumps but the insect that jumps to the next plant and when it continues feeding on another plant it transmits the virus and so the hypothesis here is that um, changes in the chlorotic color and also in the area in fe- uh, affect how likely it is that an insect like targets this area and then drinks from it and then jumps to the next area
0: mm-hmm. So the the, how the intensity of the chlorosis can be damaging to the plant, quite damaging, but the area, the, the size of the area is more directly linked to this, um, how infec- infectious it is. So how much it's spread across the plant and then also then how it will be transmitted from plant to plant. So this area is kind of one of the very key things they were interested in.
1: Yeah. Um, and so... Yeah, they, what they did is that they used all their virus isolates, infected uh, um, these three different types of plants and then started measuring this. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, then they did a lot of statistical analysis on uh, the correlation between different traits.
0: And the take home was kind of that the harm symptoms, so this intensity of the chlorosis, the deformation of the stunting were not always positively correlated with the colonization measurement, which was the the area of chlorosis. So they said in the the paper, put simply, this means that the selection acting on one of the symptom traits isn't necessarily correlating with how other symptoms evolved. So there can be this disconnect between intensity of the virus and spreadability of the virus, basically.
1: Yeah, and I also could see that um, over the time, They it sort of increased its um, traits that influenced the spread of the virus and decreased the um, or or sort of plateaued on um, the harm symptoms, uh, which yeah. This
0: is this is something which I didn't quite understand. So they they only had these samples from like the late seventies to two thousand and seven, but then they did a kind of backwards reconstruction of the phylogenetic tree. So basically, looking at how those sequences could have evolved from ancestors so it's called uh, 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 they did a continuous diffusion model implemented in beast 1.1 which is just a software um to no that was actually after they had already done the backwards thing anyway yeah. they like back predicted yeah <laughs> these sequences the ancestral sequence which i was very confused by um and then they kind of used them to look at how the ancestral um symptoms W- the ancestral viruses would have infected the plants compared to the modern ones and as Yoram said um yeah they found that generally there was this change in the um, intensity of the
1: chlorosis so for the sort of from a mechanistic point of view it is much more useful for the virus to just be transmitted uh, very much without killing the plant because yeah then the chances like as if the plant stays standing the chances are higher that a leafhopper drinks from it and and jumps mm-hmm. to the next one um and we see that in evolution so, which i found sort of a, like a, a positive message because like intuitively you often think that these pathogens they get more virulent with time they get more damaging mm. with time um but in this case um at least from this sample size uh, for for from this this experiment it looks like yeah it tries to be as mild as possible while still Mm -hmm. replicating and i mean it's still damaging the plant but it tries to sort of be mild because it just serves the purpose of spreading more
0: yeah so one of the main results that was like they had this they made this phylogenetic tree which ended up like with these backwards predictions It, it represented over 100 years i think of the phylogeny of this virus and they found that generally you developed less intensity of chlorosis but more chlorotic area so less damage to the plant but more spreadability which is this like you're not really changing how aggressive you are you're not getting at least more aggressive um, as far as damage my favorite bit of the paper was the fact that they actually um took these back predicted virus sequences and then they using the inferred genome sequences they actually chemically synthesized the genome of these viruses so they basically like made ancestral viruses and then tested them on real maize plants and found out if what they had predicted from their phenotypes based on this this like back phylogeny thing actually worked in real life and they said okay it was not perfect but it was kind of okay and they got like broadly consistent results with what they they expected but this is kind of insane that you can like <laughs> it sounds guess like a the recipe for like we
1: yeah, we, th- we know that it didn't go wrong but it's like it doesn't take a lot of imagination <laughs> to go from here to a plot like jurassic park where it's just like ah what could go wrong we like resurrected this like ancient <laughs> things i mean this is just viruses not full full-blown dinosaurs mm. but
0: um <laughs> <laughs> we but resu- that's just how it starts sir that's what they say always at the start of the yeah. horror movie like yeah I mean, but sir these we- are not full-born dinosaurs these are only viruses don't 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 yeah
1: i think in this in this paper they uh didn't ask if they should they just ask if they could
0: <laughs> i think they should have i think it's very <laughs> (laughs) cool like that (laughs) was like my. I was like they just they made these I mean it's not an organism because it's not it's a virus it's not a real thing but like yeah (laughs) but this is this is and they did say look we're only making you know probability predictions for what these ancestral things would be so like it's not exactly you know we're not resurrecting the past really it's just a guess but yeah this is this is insanely cool to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really cool and it goes to show like how the virus system works that you just have to put some viral DNA even if it's a th- synthetic viral DNA into a cell. It makes the proteins that it needs and then self-assembles and becomes a proper virus and then can go get out of there and spread and infect other cells around it. Um yeah, which is pretty crazy because i know that in it, people tried stuff like this with like bacteria and so on that they try to reboot organisms with synthetic mm-hmm. bacterial genomes where to some extent it's possible it's that much harder than with viruses um because yeah they're just more complicated uh, bacteria um but yeah i just this is what's some of the stuff that i just find so really cool in molecular biology
0: so in the end, these authors, they tested a whole lot of field collected samples on their, their maze in the lab. Then they did this like crazy phylogeny, which was not only looking at like current relationships of species they had, but also like doing this weird back predicting. And then they also made those back predicted viruses and tested them. And based on that, they came to the core conclusion that the symptoms reflecting harm to the host have remained constant or decreased. While there has been an increase in how extensively the virus colonizes the cells upon which the transmission vector feeds, so not getting worse for the plant, but getting better at spreading itself around.
1: And with that, they contributed to this virus virus model, this trade-off between lethality and transmission, and they could like extend this this idea that even sublethal symptoms. Um, follow a certain pattern of optimization for the virus transmission and for the harm done to the host plant so it still tries to optimize and find a sweet spot in there and a way to get there is by becoming more mild in the harm symptoms um yeah so pretty cool virus paper um on symptom on
0: evolution following the emergence of maize streak virus from e from january this year
1: and as always find the links in the dis- uh, in the show notes to this episode
0: favorite plant yeah it's my turn to do my favorite plant today i think um and because this podcast is going to come out on the second friday of march which happens to coincide with solar appreciation day i thought i would go with a kind of sun-based theme so for those of you who aren't yeah (laughs) don't say we've already done it because it's a different sunflower yarn
1: (laughs) no i don't think we've done it before but it's like literally the only sun like sun-related flower that i know But there's probably more i
0: mean like yeah, technically every plant is sun-related, but yeah, sunflower is quite like, <laughs> bl- like unsubtly so sun-related, I would say.
1: Did, did, I, did I break your build-up in introduction? Sorry.
0: Yeah, you ruined everything. No, I mean, <laughs> Solar Appreciation Day is actually about um, appreciating solar power, so it's kind of the idea of shifting to mm. renewable energy, which is also something we care about generally. But of course, um, when we think of things that are solar-powered, all we can think of is plants. Um, and I wanted to do sunflower. So I was actually looking around at different sunflower types. So generally, sunflower is something belonging to the genus Helianthus. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I want to do something cooler. I want to do like a special, endangered, rare, amazing sunflower. And I found a pretty cool story. So there's something called a world sunflower.
1: Uh-huh.
0: It's Helianthus vertic- verticillatus try that again helianthus verticillatus helianthus verticillatus who knows i'm terrible at this um
1: (laughs) i tried to like (laughs) write down what you just said and i'm gonna google this now and then i see if like your pronunciation and my understanding of it work together to find the plant i didn't misspell it that much so yeah Verticillatus,
0: well it could be verticillatus that might make more sense
1: verticillatus yeah
0: Did you ever do Latin? Is it a hard C or a soft C?
1: It's a hard C. It's like a K. Okay.
0: Anyway, so the cool thing about this story is that it's actually quite a rare um, sunflower. So it's only found in, I think, four different locations in different states in the US, so kind of isolated populations. Um, And it was first collected in like the late 1800s. And then people thought that it basically gone away because nobody found it again Mm -hmm. and then i think like in the late 1900s it kind of popped up again and people found okay it's there but it's only in a few different species but people still didn't have a really good idea of what it was as a species and there was even some speculation that it might have been a hybrid between two species and this is quite an important thing because when you're looking at legal protection under like the u.s endangered species act if it's a hybrid species, it's not going to be a high priority for conservation because anyway, those two other parental species exist. So it's not like, it's not really considered a real species. It's just like a mix of two other species. Um, so the first thing that's cool about this um, this sunflower is it's, it's quite rare and people weren't sure about its existence. The second thing that's cool is that what made it be discovered as a true rare example was work from one phd student's phd so (laughs) often when we do our phd we ask ourselves is what i'm doing even worthwhile like what's the point of it all will anybody care but this is the answer to all of these questions is no No. (laughs) Um, In this case, yes. So this is a graduate student at um, Vanderbilt. I think that's the university. Her name was Jennifer Ellis. I think now she's married because it's now Jennifer Ellis Mandel. And she made two important discoveries. So firstly, she did some populations genetic studies, and she found that this world sunflower is in fact its own species. So it's not just a hybrid from two other species which is like okay points for it it gets to be considered as like a unique special individual that must be saved by us all and then secondly she did some population studies so within these i think four locations that you could find it she did some actual genotyping of different individuals and then she found out that many of the individual plants that she saw were actually not true individuals they were clones Mm. And this means that there was way less genetic diversity within those populations than you would think by looking with the naked eye, which also means that the plant is much more endangered and therefore needs to be higher priority because the genetic diversity is very important when we think about how at risk a species are. So it doesn't matter if there's 80 billion individuals if they're all exactly the same thing because they're likely to collapse in a single heartbeat. So this was the second important thing. So from doing her PhD, she basically helped define this special endangered sunflower and kind of yeah gave it a name in the world so her name is uh jennifer ellis and the sunflower is called the giant world sunflower but also known as helianthus (laughs) verticulatus
1: you say it uh uh, helianthus uh, verticulatus is what i would say
0: yeah so that's my plan for today. Yeah, my that, favorite that's plan. really
1: cool. Do you know the um, sunflower meme? No. Um, no, I, no, I didn't close it. Um, so it's like a screenshot from Ask Reddit where somebody says like, what is an uplifting and happy fact? And then somebody answered, sunflowers face the sun. When they cannot find the sun, they face each other. And then somebody else added a, a comment where sunflower one is like, where's the sun, bro? And sunflower two is like, you are my sun, bro. And sunflower one is again, bro and that's the meme and uh, that's what I had to think of the uh, bro sunflowers that face each other when they can't find the sun
0: okay Jérôme's gonna link that in the show notes just so you can all appreciate <laughs> the bro sunflowers yeah
1: the <laughs> I will do that um, so yeah thank you thank you for that and uh, thank you to myself for that very stupid <laughs> addition to this very cool fact
0: diversity in place science
1: Um, And this is me now. Uh, I looked up and read about Katharina Helena Dörin. Um, Have you heard of her? Not at all. She lived from 1717 to 1795 in Hildesheim, Germany. And um, she was an educator, botanist and a pioneer of girl education. And um, I quite liked uh, reading about her. So she... Uh, back at the time, there was no possibility really for women to study and there was no school system and so on. Um, but there was this idea, this system of uh, having private educators. And uh, she uh, was born from a rather rich family and her career, her thing that she's been doing, and she she went to a family and became the their educator to their um, kids, especially to their, their girl children. And during her work as an educator, she created a library of over 1,400 watercolor watercolor paintings of uh, different Mm -hmm. plants in an area in the Netherlands um and unfortunately most of those are lost today uh, about 40 or so are, are still left and
0: wait how do we know she made 1400 because if only 40? Sh-
1: she was very um uh what's the word like very Prolific. cherished for her work uh for ah. during the time so she got a lot of praise for her scientific work because apparently these paintings were really good plant paintings that really helped in the identification and studying of these uh, all of these different plant species um, but what is that,
0: lost? Like she gave them away to friends, or like?
1: I don't know. I couldn't find more about it. Um, there is there's a book about her, um, a biography that was published in two thousand and two. But unfortunately, it's uh it's out of sale for a long time. I couldn't find anything that even like a Kindle version of it. Um, I found like one listing of it w- where it was over one hundred and forty euros for a used copy, of mm-hmm. uh, of the book. So apparently, it is in in high enough demand that you can't really get like a cheap used copy of it. So, um, so that means there is more information about her because I don't have that much more left that's, uh, that I could research on the internet about her. Just that she became an honorary member of the Gesellschaft Naturforschende Freunde. So that's the Society of Nature Researching Friends and, uh, from Berlin and from the Botanical Society of Florence. Um, so there she was, yeah, she became an honorary member for her work in plants, uh, in studying the plants. And for you um, being a musical lover, um, there's also good news there's a musical about her um, really? yeah uh, <laughs> in German <laughs> in German from like a rather small <laughs> musical company and um, it is in D- from Dillenburg uh, I actually don't know where Dillenburg is somewhere in Germany uh, and it's one of these musicals that are not great <laughs> on that's YouTube.
0: not a nice thing to say on them
1: <laughs> on on YouTube there is like um, a summary where somebody cut together this, the, the things and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I suspect it won't be the next Broadway hit but still quite cool a plant researcher that has her own musical about her. Um, Can you
0: say her name
1: again? Uh, that Her name is Katharina Helena Dörin. and I found her through the Twitter account that everybody should follow which is 365 botany women or uh, women in botany um that we'll link as well in the show notes um they every single day publish a tweet about um a great woman of botany and that's why i found Is her
0: there, are there existing f- uh, um examples of the pictures that she painted online that we can find can we put some links in the uh, show I notes i
1: couldn't find them but oh, i'll no. try again so if yeah, if look. i find some then i'll link or directly put them in the show notes below
0: let's talk 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 about bias bias, bias. 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 bias bias bias
1: bias
0: bias bias okay and today it's my turn to spin the cognitive bias codex wheel and i landed on something which falls into the category of what should we remember and more specifically into the category of we edit and reinforce some memories after the fact and um, this one is called cryptonesia which perhaps you can already guess, Joram, from the name what it might be related to.
1: I think I actually... Cryptomnesia. I, I read about this, but Ooh. I modified my memory, so I have no <laughs> idea really what well it done. was about. It's um, So maybe crypto, like something that's encrypted, that is um, not accessible anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Hidden concealed secret from the group Kryptos. Can you correct correct Joram? Yes, and my, my, the second part uh, is amnesia. Greek
1: amnesia is the forgetting mm. like it's from amnesia exactly no, like, is it from amnesia, from amnesia is maybe remembering okay. right stop because
0: you've gone far enough you've done you're 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 right
1: i tried to figure out like if amnesia is like if the a syllable means like not ninja and if like amnesia mm-hmm. is the memory and <laughs> amnesia is the well, that's not a good memory. Point. i don't um, know But that's complete speculation. Like I never learned ancient Greek in school. I'm quite happy about it.
0: (laughs) Okay. uh, (laughs) Anyway, the point of cryptomnesia is exactly that. It's when a forgotten memory returns, but we don't realize that it's been forgotten. So we actually think that it's a new and original idea as opposed to a memory. And um, basically, yeah, you're falsely recalling something But you end up plagiarizing because you think that it's not recall, but it's a completely new idea. And there's two different forms. And one is self-plagiarism. So you thought of something and then you come up with the same idea. And the other is when somebody else tells you something and you come up with the same idea again. So, um, the very first empirical study of cryptomnesia was that they had people um, generating certain category examples. So, like, think of types of birds, think of this, whatever. Um, and then they were asked to give new examples of the same category that haven't been mentioned before. Um, and then also to say whether they were the ones who had generated the words um, if they had been generated before. And People tended to do both things where they first thought that they were coming up with something newly when it had already been mentioned, but also when they thought that they were the one who came up to it with the idea previously when it was actually somebody else who came up with it. So they did these both kinds of cryptomnesia, this self-plagiarizing and the other person plagiarizing. Um which is obviously a bit of a problem because we are imperfect human beings. So it just basically means that there is a certain level of plagiarism which is built into us because we're a bit useless in this way. <laughs> um, and I think there's a couple of famous examples of this. Um, for me, the most like clear one is involving Helen Keller. I don't know if you've heard about this before.
1: I heard of Helen Keller, um, but not about uh, this, this case of plagiar- plagiarism.
0: Okay, so there's this thing where Helen Keller was I think like eleven or twelve years old and she wrote out a fairy tale which she called The Frost King. Um but then it you know, it was sent to somebody and they published it in a small magazine, and at one point somebody said, This is not original. She's actually copied it from another fairy tale, which I forget the name of the original. Um it's from King Jack Frost. Um
1: mm-hmm.
0: no. I forget the original one, sorry. And then it became this huge um, scandal. Uh, Frost Fairy, which was the original thing, where people were debating whether Helen Keller had actually been told this story by the other author or whether she was, you know, lying about knowing about it or if her handlers were actually lying about knowing about it to try and, you know, give her an advantage to try and promote her for something that she didn't have and they were trying to, like, make her lie. And this whole the author of the original story got involved and was like, guys, it's fine. Anyway, her version is better than mine, whatever. Like, nobody cares. Um, Helen Keller basically had a kind of nervous breakdown because it's like an 11-year-old girl being accused of, like, being involved in some grand. um, And in the end, people say that, We don't know what what actually happened, but it could just be this cryptonesia where she got told the story once when she was a bit younger and she forgot she heard it and then it was floating around in the back of her head. And then at one point it came out and she thought it was her own idea and she really did not honestly know about the copying. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's a few other famous examples. So also something involving George Harrison stealing some song from Ronald Mack, who I have not heard of. Um, And some other things with different famous authors involving this kind of same possible plagiarism, but possible cryptomnesia. And basically this idea that no thought that you have is ever original. It's all built upon by other thoughts and other ideas that exist out there in the world. So, yeah, Yeah. that's cryptomnesia, which is one of the types of bias that we have in our small human minds.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really a fascinating thing, especially when it comes to this. Um, in in arts and music especially like with george harrison where there is a finite number of melodies that you can come up with especially within like our melodic system and Mm -hmm. so on um so you might just hear something somewhere it might be stuck in your brain and then at one point it comes up again in 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 parts of a song and um yeah i'm i'm a big fan of the the approach of saying like everything's a remix we have to be like Mm -hmm. less uptight with copyright and like just accept that like there will be like things that you do will inspire other people and they will take parts of your stuff and make new things with it and um yeah and I it for depends one
0: though right because if it's like one of these big if it's a big player stealing something from a small not so well-known artist especially a minority artist that's really not cool right
1: there's and this cool is something which also this.
0: happens deliberately right
1: there's a very cool story about this from 99% invisible about who let the dogs out it's like an who, entire who, who? episode about this song who let the dogs out and its history and trying to figure out who came up with this chorus. This is a very famous chorus of like who let the dogs out and then this barking. And, um, although like, I don't particularly like the song. This episode is amazing because it really deals with all of these uh, things. Like they, they track out down like artists after artist that at one point made a piece of music that had this thing in it. And they try to figure out like, do they know from each other? Did they like hear it at one point? There was at mm-hmm. one at one point during the story, there's like two guys that um, built their own sound system on a car and d- drove with it through the streets playing like drum and bass music. And in one of these songs, there is like as a sample, a part of this like this, this sound. So they exposed a ton of people to it. And so it's mm-hmm. very possible that some people like that had that stuck in their mind and then later thought they came up with this when uh um, they
0: cryptomnesia that stuff
1: yeah so really cool like i uh, i link that as well um mm. uh anyway very good podcast and this is a very fitting episode for that this is where the fun begins. this is where the fun begins. this is where the fun and uh, i have uh, something f- uh, for the beginning where well, I want to play you a little sound and um, yeah, you tell me what this is.
0: Am I supposed to guess the instrument or the location or
1: what? No, w- what this sound represents. I mean, it's a little bit of a trick question. Uh. Um, okay,
0: no, sh- can you give me a, a broad category?
1: A virus. Is <laughs> it coronavirus? Yes, this is the coronavirus. <laughs> Um, This is not the coronavirus. Very recently, the um, full genome or DNA sequence of the coronavirus was sequenced. And um, there is this sound artist here that um, took the entire sequence and turned it into music by taking the individual letters and assigning them to notes in a MIDI file and then playing this sound. It's like a two hour long sound file um, that sounds exactly like the few seconds that we played just now um, just for a very, very long time. Um, and yeah, this, I just came across it. I've, I thought it's fun to do this on a podcast, but there's really not that much more to it. Um, unfortunately, like with most uh, sonifications, so the turning of data into sound usually sounds quite random. And mm. that's all we can well, take Especially if it. they're
0: doing like C-A-T-G-G-G-C-A. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, so link in the show notes. <laughs> if you want to listen to two hours of um, synthetic sounds made from the coronavirus it actually could be, like
0: i i'm looking for stuff now for my job where it's sounds because sometimes the office is a bit noisy but it can't be any words because it's distracting so like classical music is quite good or like yeah. these brainwave music on youtube so maybe like coronavirus could be a nice yeah. um, background sound i for mixed my this morning. down
1: to mono actually because it had a very strong stereo effect on it so it was just like whooshing back and forth left and right constantly at like a very fast speed so it actually drove me mad listening to it like ah. on my speakers so i don't recommend this part particular music to study and okay. relax to <laughs> good <laughs> to know <laughs> because it's go- well, go I, don't, like, I don't need <laughs> to be relaxed at work
0: I mean, also in the last last week I, at work, I haven't been drinking coffee because my coffee, we have free coffee at my new office and I, it was getting a little bit out of control how much coffee I was drinking. So I've been like, okay, black tea only from now on. Let's work your way down, Tegan. Um, so being slightly tense from non-caffeine stimulus might be a good idea. <laughs> Could be helpful. <laughs> um, speaking of sounds, actually, I found something on I Fucking Love Science, which is an article called Only a Small Number of People Can Create the Sound in Their Ears are you an ear rumbler? And <laughs> it's basically this thing that you can somehow twitch the the tympani, so like a muscle within your ear, which like when you contract it, it then makes this like rumbling vibration sound
1: mm-hmm.
0: inside your ear. And they kind of give an example of like, an explanation of how you could try to do it I don't think I can personally do it but I encourage all of you to go out and see if you can manage to make this rumbling sound and people say it's quite useful so they can use it to like block out background sounds like for like momentarily for a little while so like if they're in a movie theater and somebody's giving spoilers they can like basically put a deaf note on inside their ears by tensing this muscle which um Yeah, it's just another one of those things of, like, can you twist your tongue? Can you, like, touch your nose with your tongue or whatever that some people can do and some people can't do? But I have never heard of ear rumbling and apparently this is the new thing.
1: There's some good memes in the article, so check that out. Um. Yeah.
0: No, there's not good memes. (laughs) I hate those, like... There's one of those, I bet he's thinking about other women memes and and he's, like, ear I hate those woman i bet he's thinking about other women
1: no i like it like, because they are they d- deteriorated so far now so there's also some things where it's like ah i bet he's probably uh thinking about something completely unrelated right now and him thinking about other women and stuff like lots of iterations on that i th- i mean maybe i'm too deep into meme stuff i really
0: maybe a sexist
1: probably i probably am <laughs> sexist as well I mean, and i'm saying we're that in all, all seriousness a little bit sexist. That, yeah that's like inherent sexism is something hard to like that I we don't have know, to they
0: they still hit something inside me where i'm just like
1: yeah, you can you can't laugh at this um
0: <sighs> i'm just not funny women are just not funny that's the problem <laughs>
1: that's why there's no girl comedians <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's why it's not like institutionalized sexism within the like,
1: uh, yeah <laughs> um,
0: also like some comedians really like to lock women in rooms and like try to masturbate in front of them and for some reason that makes all the women want to leave so comedy good,
1: really like le- le- let it go already like who hasn't <laughs> done this like throw the first stone if you haven't done this before like locking an innocent woman in a room <laughs> and masturbating in front of her just for your own amusement I mean
0: I can just imagine like thousands of stones falling on you like this um <laughs> life of brian style somebody <laughs> just like dumps a huge <laughs> rock on your head
1: right now Um, So, yeah, obviously I don't mean what I just said. Please don't take this out of context and play it back at a later time point, uh, uh, embarrassing me. Uh, We were
0: discussing earlier this week how hard it would be for Joram to ever become a politician based on the the bullshit he puts up on Facebook sometimes. Or now Twitter, now on our Twitter feed. I'm a Uh, little bit concerned that people won't realize that our Twitter feed is run by you and at some point they'll be like, Oh, Tegan, these horrible things you've said about women making sandwiches for me. And I was
1: like, it wasn't me. I didn't say anything like that on Twitter. Yeah. Um... (laughs) At least not on our Twitter. <laughs> 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 I, I, I can't be a sexist. Some of my best friends are women, so. Uh. <laughs> I mean,
0: your woman is a woman. <laughs> I can't be sexist. The woman, my woman, is a woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah yeah i sorry guys yeah we'll... i
1: recently like facebook reminded me of something that i posted a while ago and i think i meant it ironic already back then but just seeing this like out you of context like, did, like as a reminder on like women's day i said something like a very bad joke eight years ago and facebook brought that up, and was like no, thank you, Facebook. I don't want to re- be reminded of this. Uh, on the other hand, it shows me that I've grown, like I'm looking back on myself, I um, my past self is much stupider, which I think is much better than if I would think, oh, I've been much smarter in the past, because that means I, I got gradually mm-hmm. dumber.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say you absolutely still say those things, but you're a little bit more cautious about putting them online, which shows some form of intelligence. <laughs> but I mean, again, like I, I knew you back then, and I, this is one of the problems with this podcast, because like I know Yarn very well, he knows me very well. So we do say bullshit where the other one's like, ha ha, you're speaking bullshit. The rest of the world, we're going to just have to just believe that... <laughs> <laughs> try to try to think the best of us. Try to try not to yeah. believe that Yarm is actually a horrible person who thinks that masturbation in a room with locked up women is okay, okay?
1: I think we had enough uh like very strong feminist rants on here that are actually serious to make sure that people understand that I'm not a fan of Louis C.K. Like
0: Oh, but his comedy is good. <laughs>
1: I had some friends that were big fans and he recently came to Berlin. Uh, but after mm. the whole Me Too thing, they were like, no, I actually can't laugh at his jokes I anymore. Was actually,
0: I was actually a fan. I really liked his show. Um, and yeah. this is one of the, the discussions about whether you can, yeah, like still like the art of somebody. And But there's also in his show, there was this awkward thing where he tries to molest a woman and she basically screams to him you're e- like you're so useless you can't even rape me properly and it's this is like really awkward joke where it's kind of like a really nice commentary on society but then in the context of who he actually turned out to be as a person it was just like
1: yeah
0: oh, oh, like yeah.
1: i I myself i can't it's if, a if i hear something like this to me it's uh, graham linham, uh, linham linham the, the uh, writer of it crowd and and father oh yeah father Todd, Todd James, whatever, like another show before. Ted,
0: favorite Ted. Father, Father Ted.
1: Ted, I think, yeah. Um, and I absolutely love the IT crowd, but um, Graham Livingham is now like really a very transphobic, right? And, like, yeah, he's yeah. a really terrible transphobe. He's a really terrible person, and therefore, like, yeah, I find less enjoyment now in the IT crowd because there are some mm. jokes there as well where they like the two nerds, like Moss and and Roy, they dress up as women in in some part and it's sort of the butt of the joke there is like hey they're they're wearing women's clothes and like if it's isolated you can sort of take it as a joke but knowing that it's written by a transphobe makes it yeah, much in less the enjoyable context of,
0: like that that probably is somebody who's yeah yeah, so yeah and i think like it's that thing of even if you do like their old stuff i still don't think they should continue to get money so even if you say okay like I did enjoy this IT crowd. We should still absolutely ostracize this guy and like not let him have any more money to make any things. Even if he's like amazing and funny, like there's yeah. lots of amazing and funny people out there, and some of them are also not dicks. So like, let's hire them.
1: Yeah, that's why I want to say like, don't buy the new book from Woody Allen.
0: Today I read something about how turtles really like the smell of plastic. Uh huh. They think it's tasty. It reminds them of fish or prawns, or at least they think the smell of, t- of plastic is just as appealing as the smell of fish or prawns. Mm-hmm. So they want to eat the plastic. And this is a very, very sad fact. At least that was the response that is the normal response. But I just thought stupid turtles, which is very <laughs> unfair for me because, of course, it's not turtles' fault that we have now like polluted their sea with something that they have never come across before. And it's not their fault that plastic happens to smell like prawns
1: and um just to also like make fun of plants i mean plants they also like have a weird thing what for um stuff that's in plastic they really enjoy ethylene as a hormone and ethylene is part of polyethylene which is like a very mm-hmm. common plastic so far i haven't seen a study yet that looked at like the breakdown of plastic is that if that has like hormonal effects on plants but just to the point of like stupid turtle can't tell that plastic is not tasty um if <laughs> uh, maybe plants also can't tell that maybe they shouldn't change their growth behavior because of ethylene in the air that's coming from decomposing polyethylene plastics um just so like like, i'm
0: one of the benefits of plastic that it never ever breaks down like it just stays for eternity unless a turtle eats it like this is kind of (laughs) part
1: part of the thing all of the plastic recycling is actually turtles eating it.
0: (laughs) poor turtles i mean we're just we're just the worst to the planet aren't we we're just so horrible
1: um so i have also something and plants no
0: plastic and plants i have a segue
1: (laughs) And okay, then do the third fact in a row, can just like throw all of our structure d- overboard.
0: And then I'll be quiet for a really long time, like <laughs> 30 or 40 seconds. Um, this is a <laughs> shout out to our friend Vanessa, who once did the same thing, um, but not for two years. So also on I fucking love science, a woman waters succulent for two years only to find out it's plastic. <laughs> that's that's all. Like that's, I really don't need to say any more, that's... <laughs> well done you're, you're a star 10 <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> turn <that's>, <laughs>
1: happens to the best of us i had a segue from like smelling things and liking things um there has been a new study <laughs> uh that found Bugs, that butts. that bees really like cannabis uh they found um they they sampled in the us where they, they can now grow cannabis they sampled different cannabis fields and found that there's 16 different bee species that really like male cannabis pollen um so they they uh, try to to like specifically go to these plants they don't really like the female flowers and we talked in the past about that female flowers are the ones that have all the thc so the stuff that people like to smoke um, and so them but the male pollen is the thing that uh, is attractive to bees and so now i propose now that we use this knowledge to within our crop systems establish cannabis as well or hemp because it's a very versatile crop you can like not only make drugs from it which is the main best use to it in my opinion but you can make like from the fibers you can make um, textile and cloth and ropes uh, you we're can, not going to
0: become a drug po- podcast Aaron. that's not we don't do those y- kind of yeah,
1: things I mean we both don't do drugs, so. <laughs>
0: like really well, I don't. I can't smoke anything. I would immediately die.
1: <laughs> and also, I don't. I don't care for drugs. Um, so, no, but uh, I actually like. I think I consumed more cannabis in the form of like a powder. I put in a smoothie as like a kick of. Uh, um, I think iron is is what's mostly like in hemp there. seeds. Yeah, like ground up hemp seeds is very mm-hmm. nutritious. So you can eat parts of the plant. You can make um, fabric from fibers. the fibers, mm-hmm. um, and so. It's a very versatile crop that's frowned upon because of its use in drug production. Um, And these researchers, they propose now that we actually grow hemp again because it's uh, sort of a refugium for the bees that they uh, like and enjoy and can stabilize uh, weakened bee um, uh, populations. I found a very cool uh, little article um, uh, or or blog post. Uh, It's called In Praise of Editing. And this is the one case where it's not CRISPR genome editing, it's actual editing of a text. And it's about the beauty Dude. that is that this text editing and like r- red writing. And the annotations that you get and the fact that it's this bittersweet thing because if you get like a a corrected text back, it sort of hurts because it shows that things that you wrote were not great. But at the same time, it's so great because it's improved now. It's a better version Mm -hmm. of uh, than it was before. And you learn from it and it gets better. And usually like if a text is really terrible you don't get a lot of annotations because there's nothing to work with it's just, it's just there's like rewrite while if it's already good and can be better then you get like lots and lots of small uh, annotations and uh, the edits in the text and I found it was a very charming article about this idea like how nice it is to have your stuff edited for you mm-hmm. how you like the feelings you get when in the morning you come in the office and you have a fresh stack of papers with red marks on it um, to edit and go through through during the day
0: and this was definitely like a discussion amongst all the phd students half of them who had um very edit heavy bosses um or supervisors who would like you know oh my boss is like editing my work too much it's so stressful i have so much to do and then the other half of us who were like no my boss is not editing my work enough i'm not getting enough like support and improvement and you know you always want what you don't have
1: yeah i i like to have more editing i i really enjoy that um luckily i
0: like s- having editing but i will hate the person who edited my work like yeah, same i'm for me, not yeah. a complete enough human being to be able to take edits without despising whoever did the editing
1: uh, i mean even
0: though i know it's helping me
1: yeah i mean our dynamic here is that usually like you edit more my stuff and that's for mm-hmm. therefore like i hate you more
0: <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes you edit my stuff and i'm just like i'm not going to talk to you on for a week now
1: fuck that guy so um I have another uh fact like my last fun fact for today is um also like a very small story and I just picked this up because you live now in London and this is a story of a guy who cycled all streets in central London um that's Davis Willems uh why not? <laughs> <is the answer. laughs> so he commutes by bike to his work, and then he got the mm-hmm. idea of like trying to like reach all of the small streets on his way to work, and then he started um, marking them on physical maps, all the streets that he's been to already, and then use Google Maps to find new new routes. And so every day for during his commute, he would extend his commute a little bit and go through a different route. To, through a different street, through a different, like, narrow passage somewhere. Um, and over time, I actually don't know how long it took him. Um, he filled her, the whole years. thing, and he has like some cool animations and some photos of his physical maps where he marked all the streets. And, um, yeah, I just found it a very nice, uh, story. Um, where mm, that's quite sweet yeah and he says he now has such a, a, a better understanding of his neighborhood and of, of like central london he feels like much more connected to it now because yeah, he's been he's seen every single street in central london now i think something that not many people can say of themselves um so yeah that's that's just that very short thing and then i have a cat fact that doesn't really deserve the cat fact jingle because it's not about cats
0: play it anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> meow meow meow.
1: Cat fat. <laughs> Have you heard of Riker? Riker the dog. Riker the dog is the best worst guide dog because um he's been in training to be a guide dog and there is a video of him where they present all these different uh tasks for him like pulling up a chair opening the fridge and so on and he completely wrecks havoc every single time at every task he like pulls stuff across the room and so on and so there are these training people that like that um, sort of mimic being disabled so they can train the dog and they like fall over and have to like catch the dog so (laughs) um, obviously this dog didn't um, make the cut to be a a real guide dog but it's just very interesting to watch how he's, he's like he's he's going for it he's like he's trying to to achieve the thing so he's not completely misunderstanding it but he does it with so much force and so much he's like,
0: just too excited maybe yeah he's, like
1: too invested like he he tips over a wheelchair here in the video and he pushes away like a walker that somebody has Um, and it's just like a funny short video that was passed around here um, about a dog it was like the best worst guide dog
0: <laughs> very cute
1: yeah, I'll send the link to you so we can enjoy it later. And the link is in the show notes, like always. So this was my very short cat, cat fact about a terrible... we got
0: to work to get, like, actual cat facts at some stage.
1: Yeah, but cats, they're just so perfect. And also, there's so little facts about them because, like, the stories have been told. Cats are the best.
0: <laughs> Although apparently all of our Twitter followers like dogs.
1: Yeah, so they will like this one. <laughs>
0: okay um that's all for today i think you can follow us on facebook or on instagram there you can talk to me we're
1: at plants and pipettes on twitter you can reach me at plants
0: we also have a website which is www.plantsandpipettes where we put blog posts up twice weekly generally about various things that are happening in the plant molecular biology world
1: and you can rate us on itunes and give us five Mm -hmm. stars There, that would be very nice
0: Mm-hmm. and always leave us comments or any suggestions if you want us to write about the science that you've done as a plant person please just let us know um we're always keen to have some ideas
1: if we get anything wrong during the podcast or in writing just reach out to us we're very happy to correct and improve and um yeah tell tell and the true things
0: not just scientifically wrong but also morally wrong yeah and any doing. we're human
1: yes just let us know um you can support us by spreading the word tell your friends about the podcast um like our stuff retweet our stuff share our stuff that really helps us it's a a small click for you but a large impact to our audience for us and And our opening and closing music is caravana by philip cross and goodbye goodbye